This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. The sky was azure blue. The weather was a steamy 34 degrees Celsius. It was Saturday, September the 15th. And you could be forgiven for not knowing that the most powerful typhoon ever recorded in Hong Kong's weather records was on its way. In Times Square, in the heart of the bustling shopping district of Causeway Bay, shoppers and tourists jostled shoulder to shoulder, trundling their suitcases, hauling their bags of newly purchased designer wear, posing for selfies, queuing for the tour buses back to mainland China, or filing on and off the escalators leading underground to Hong Kong's MTR subway system. Some 24 hours later, these streets would be deserted. Wind would be howling up the canyons of concrete and glass of Causeway Bay. Shattered glass, bits of steel and advertising hoardings would be flying through the air, smashing off other buildings and crashing to the ground. 18 floors above Times Square, in the offices of the South China Morning Post, we were running a live blog, broadcasting Facebook Live, editing and publishing the photos and videos sent in from our teams on the scene across Hong Kong and in Macau, as well as rushing to verify and source videos and photos pouring in from the public via social media. We also had a newspaper to publish the next day. My name is Naomi Ng, and you're listening to Behind the Story of Typhoon Mankut. Hong Kong's official typhoon season lasts from May to November each year. The peak season is from July to September. So far, there have been 23 official storms and four super typhoons recorded in the Pacific region in 2018. But Mankut, named for the Thai word for mangosteen fruit, would be the first proper typhoon to hit Hong Kong this year. In the days leading up to the weekend, the questions swirled as meteorologists, journalists and citizens analyzed weather maps. Would it move north towards Taiwan? Would it head west towards Hainan? Would it come right this way? It was all down to what happened when it made landfall in the Philippines. We published a story on scmp.com on the Wednesday with a prescient quote. It was from the governor of the Cagayan province on the northeastern tip of Luzon Island in the Philippines, saying, This one is very different. It's one week after Typhoon Mankut hit us here in Hong Kong. And you can still see damage and wreckage from the storm, both on Hong Kong Island and on what we call the Kowloon side. It's strange, though. In some places, you never guess this was a place hit by 200-kilometer-an-hour winds, while in others, the damage appears devastating, permanent, and lasting. One of the people who sits near me at the city desk is Phila Siu. Not only was he on duty the day of the storm, he ended up becoming one of those people who shoots a video on their phones which gets copied, reposted, retweeted, and goes viral worldwide. It's a Thursday morning. We're sitting in Sham Shui Po at a cafe uh, at a youth hostel with my colleague Phila Siu. Um, and he's just on a couple days break um, after covering our one of the world's most intense super typhoons ever. 
It's a really bright day out, but it wasn't really bright last week. Uh, Fila, tell me how it was on Sunday. Yeah, looking back at what happened on Sunday, it was such a crazy day. Um, I've covered a lot of typhoons, obviously, but that one, I knew it was going to be different. So my day started at around 7.30 when a company car picked up me, my photographer and the video producer up. Uh, before we set off, the typhoon signal number 8 was already up, but the wind wasn't really strong at that time. Um, we visited a couple of places. One of the first places that we visited was a village in Chinmun. We decided to go there because it was in the low-lying area and the government um, the day before has tried to evacuate the villages there. But surprisingly, the village, none of the villages, as we were told by them, they, they were not moving, they were not evacuating. They said that um, they were not moving because they didn't want to abandon their homes. So what we saw at the village was that there were villagers who put sandbags at the doors to try to stop water from getting inside the house. But actually, because in the morning the wind wasn't as strong as it, as it was in the afternoon, so there were no flooding by the time we left, but the villagers were really nervous. They were helping out each other, uh, but by the time we left, it, it wasn't flooded. But then again, a couple of hours later, we called them up, and they told us that the water level was already raised high, and the water was already entering the houses, and they were busy uh, uh, doing the job, so they weren't able to talk any further. Fila, what were these villagers saying? Why didn't they want to leave their house? They were not living because they, they felt like, oh, they've seen a lot of typhoons already. I mean, there's like one typhoon or two typhoons every year in Hong Kong, so they felt like they've seen everything. They knew that this one was different, but they felt like this is our home and they were not ready and they didn't want to abandon their homes. So that's why they had sandbags, they have uh, plywood at the doors to, um, to try to stop the water from getting inside. So basically, um, the reason is that they considered them their home and they did not want to abandon their home. So what happened afterwards, you know, later in the afternoon when things got really intense, you called them, what did they do? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I called one villager and she said that she was just too busy because the water has entered her houses and she wasn't able to talk any further. But from the sound, from, from, from the way she sounded, it, it, it was quite bad. And but unfortunately, we weren't able to talk any further. But, you know, before we left, I saw that the sandbags um, were, were quite high. So if the water was able to enter the house, it must have been, the water level must have been up to waist high. And then my other colleague called, helped me, because I was busy outside, so my other colleague called, helped me to call another villager. Um, that villager told my colleague that, oh, the water level is already raised high and they were really busy. And uh, he said that he didn't want to leave because that was, that was his house. And well, basically, they didn't want to leave because they have a lot of properties in the house and if they have left, they fear that, for example, the, the jewelries, the, the other items in the house might be flushed away, so, so they didn't want to leave. So after you left the village, uh, you went back to the car with our photographer and our videographer. Um, where did you go next and when did the typhoon really start to get intense? The typhoon got really intense, I think, at around 3 p.m., 3 to 4 p.m. 
it was such a crazy experience. I mean, I'm not the kind of person who like to exaggerate things, but it was really crazy to be driving around the streets in Hong Kong. It really felt like a zombie movie because there were falling trees everywhere. Like we were, we were on this road to Hong Ham, and then the, there was a tree blocking the road, so we had to take another way to Hong Ham. And then there was another tree blocking the the the, the, the road, so. So basically, it really felt like a, like in a zombie movie. You were trying to get to your destination, but a lot of the roads were blocked, so you just have to figure out a way to to get there. But um, the craziest part of that day was really what what we've seen in Hong Kong. So we've we've we heard reports that um, windows in one of the office buildings were were broken. So we must check it out because from the pictures we saw on social media, it was really bad. So, um, by the way, Hong Kong is on the seaside, so so we expect that the wind to be strong. And we went to the the, the office building. Uh, the office building was in front of us, but we can't get really close. Like we can't get to the we can't get downstairs of the building because the wind was just too strong. And um, the car was shaking. Um, and you can feel that if we get out of the car, it would be really dangerous. And I could I could see at the time that like half of the windows at the lower floors were all blown away, and there were shattered glass on the street everywhere. And at a point, I could I could hear that uh, the glasses were hitting the car. So me and my colleagues decided that it wasn't safe to get out of the car. So we stayed in the car for a while. We stayed in the car for a while. We drove around, but we really couldn't manage to um, get to the seaside. We were really close to the seaside, but we can't really get out there because it was dangerous. So we're driving around Tong Hong, and a couple of hours, hours later, I think one or two hours later, at around 4:30 or 5, the wind has weakened. We decided to get to the um, the office building to check it out again, and it was unlike anything I've ever seen. In my life, there were shredded glasses, literally everywhere. It's it's like a sea of shredded glass. It's like a sea of shrapnels in in on in Hong Kong, and it felt quite dangerous because if the wind blows, I I fear that the the shrapnels will will probably hurt me. But uh, me and my very brave colleagues, uh, photographers, we took some pictures. We we sent it back to the well. I actually uploaded some pictures on my social media Twitter account because these days, um, social media is is a very important way to get your words to get your pictures out. So I took some pictures of the shredded glass in in Hong Kong and I immediately uh, posted them on my Twitter account, and then the pictures just went crazy. I I think I had around uh, 300 retweets and like a couple hundred likes. Um, you know, as they say, a picture speaks a thousand words. I I can describe the, the scenario with a thousand words, but I mean, a picture does a better job. So let's fast forward a bit. Um, it's five o'clock. It's still the typhoon signal number ten. Uh, where were you, and what did you see? I was walking around Hong Kong, and then there were already uh, some people walking around to see street to see the destruction, and then I saw this guy. This guy. I saw a guy who put a rubbish bin over his head, and he was like walking around, you know, taking pictures with the with the people in the area, and and he he seemed to be just to be having fun. So when you saw that, what did you do? I actually saw him from afar, but then I immediately took out my phone and tried to take some pictures and videos of of him, 
but he was quite far away from me, so I had to chase him down a little bit. So I was chasing, chasing him, and then he was, you know, uh, saying hi to the people walking past him, and then he was sort of taking pictures with the people uh, on the street. So once I got close up to him, I took a video of him, and then I immediately sent the, sent the video back to the office, and then our social media editor uh, immediately posted it on, on the SCMB Twitter account and tagged me, and then uh, it sort of went viral. If you're listening and you don't know what a Hong Kong bin looks like, it is, it's bright orange in color, and it's shaped kind of like a capsule. And this guy put it over his head, and he was walking around the streets, and he looked like you know, an orange minion character. Um, and it was just hilarious. You know, throughout the day, we had all these crazy videos of typhoons causing, wreaking havoc around the city, and it was really, really bad. But to see this one video, just, you know, this guy out there uh, sort of broke the tension, sort of, you know, reminded us that amidst all this destruction, there's that very classic Hong Kong spirit where people know how to take things in stride and be creative and bring humor to a really bad day. You're exactly right, Naomi. I don't think that guy was trying to be uh, Iron Man, but there's a spirit in Hong Kong that we call the Lion Rock spirit. When you, um, when you work hard, but then at the end of the day, you try to be optimistic, you have a bit of a fun, and that's what we call, it's very typical Hong Kong, is, is what we call the Lion Rock spirit. You grew up in Hong Kong, you know, you've seen typhoons, you've been in, you know, outside covering a typhoon number eight signal, but you said this was different. You know, after, you know, this passed for about a week, um, now that you have time to think back on it, um, you know, how, how, how do you think this experience was for you? If I have to describe the whole experience in one word, I could only think about the word different because this typhoon is really different, much different than any of the other typhoons I've ever seen. As I've said, um, we've seen typhoons so many times, there's, there's at least one typhoon every year in Hong Kong. But you know, uh, the destruction that this typhoon brought Hong Kong was, was extreme. There were fallen trees everywhere, and you know, um, one of the things that hit me the most was that the day after the typhoon hit Hong Kong, I, w I had, uh, fortunately I had a day off. So, but then I was watching the images on SMB.com, images on TV, you know, Hong Kong people trying to get from home to work despite the, the metro system was not working, the buses were not running. Uh, I, was, I was reading my Facebook post and then I saw people saying that, oh, we're, we thought about climbing the mountain from home to get to work. So this is really the true Hong Kong spirit. Despite the destruction that the typhoon has brought, Hong Kong people, you know, they, 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 never, they never give up. If they have to do something, they, they make it work. This is the true Hong Kong spirit. Sam Zhang is one of the veteran photographers on the South China Morning Post photo desk. He's been with us for a decade, although he's very, very rarely seen in the office. His Sunday started at one of the places in Hong Kong that was to be the hardest hit by Typhoon Mankut, the Hang Fa Chun housing estate. 
It's on the northeastern side of Hong Kong Island. Sam, as a photographer, you let the pictures do the talking. How about we make this easier and do this in Cantonese? Yes, sure. Can you tell us what happened on Sunday? What did you do? Where did you go and what did you see? It was around 8 o'clock. The tide was not very high. We could still walk towards the coast to take photos. We could take photos of these large waves, as high as several floors, crashing to the shore. Gradually, as the wind picked up and got closer to Hong Kong, the wind and sand would hit our faces, and it actually hurt quite a lot. The tide started to rise and started to cover our photo spots by the shoreline. We had to keep retreating. After an hour or two, we had to go far back, closer to the MTR, where it was safer to take cover. We had to make sure we were safe. How high were the waves? When you were at the shore, other than journalists, what other people did you see there? By the time we got there, the waves were already several floors high. They reached up to the fourth or fifth floor. There were print journalists, also TV journalists doing live shots. There were residents as well as people who wanted to look at the waves and experience the typhoon. We told them to get back because it was quite dangerous. They weren't well equipped with any protective gear. They were just wearing flip-flops, t-shirts and shorts. It was really quite dangerous. At Hong Fa Chun, some of the people who I think were property management at the estate tried to pick up rubbish and debris that were lying everywhere. But as the tide came in, they could only retreat back to where there was cover. As a photographer covering typhoons, do you plan ahead of time on what kind of shots you want to take? Or do you see what happens on the ground and go from there? We don't really plan in advance what specific shots we want. Of course, we hope we can take some photos to show how strong the typhoon is. But we know that safety always comes first. There isn't a single photo worth exchanging your life for. It's almost a week after the typhoon hit. Was there a photo or any series of photos or moments that were really memorable for you? Hmm. Memorable moments. One memorable moment was seeing some people who really shouldn't be there watch the waves. And then we'd see rescue personnel having to expend a lot of effort, having to fall here and there, trying to save them. This was really dangerous to both themselves and rescue personnel. I don't think this was very good behavior. That was what I was concerned about. So on the day you saw rescue personnel save residents, can you tell us what you saw? I was looking on from a safe place. The whole of Hong Chun was already flooded by the time it was noon. It was higher than your waist. We would suddenly see people we didn't know if they were residents in the area, or those wave watchers. They just suddenly appeared in the middle of the water. We didn't know why they were there. Every time they walked in between buildings in the estate, where there were these really strong wind corridors, it would get really dangerous. They didn't know what they were walking on. They would just keep walking. And when the wind blew, it was so strong they would just end up lying on their backs, floating in the water. From afar, we could see fire services personnel try to reach them, clambering over things, falling over things, just to try to rescue them and bring them to a safer location. Can you describe how bad it got? You mentioned there was sand flying into your face. Was this the worst of it? There was sand and rocks flying in our faces, but at the same time, the wind was so strong you couldn't stand straight. 
You had to hold on to pillars. We were clinging to anything that was stable in order to be able to stand properly. When the wind was coming straight at your face, you had to hide behind concrete structures. Otherwise, you would be blown away. One scene that stuck with me. I was walking with another photographer past a spot where the winds were particularly strong. I was walking ahead of him. When we were passing through a space between buildings, I hid in a safe space relatively quickly. But when I looked back, a gust of wind had thrown him against a railing by a minibus stop. His whole body slammed into the railing with a bang. He had to get low for a while before he could run for safer cover. You're no stranger to typhoons. You've seen what it can be like. Was this any different this time around? Was this the most intense typhoon you've ever reported on? This typhoon, no doubt, was the most intense one I've ever seen. Last year, reporting on Typhoon Hato, I thought that was bad enough. I was seeing things that I had never seen before. But after this year's Super Typhoon Mankut, I've never seen anything so intense in my life. So many scenes I've never even seen. Scenes like scattered glass being blown everywhere. Things you would never even believe would actually happen in Hong Kong. Destruction everywhere. Even after two or three days, there were still fallen trees all around. Typhoons before didn't cause such destruction compared to this one. While Sam and Fila were out in the storm, we had people in our offices in Times Square, updating the live blog, updating the storm's progress, keeping track of the damage reports as they came in. The highest level typhoon warning, T10, was issued at 9.40 a.m. It stayed in place for 10 hours, the longest that's happened in almost 20 years. While Hong Kong locked itself down and kept safe, it became the focus of worldwide attention. If you're watching the SEMP website or Facebook page, you are probably among approximately 20 million people who access videos being published by these next two characters. Chu Lu, our supervising video producer, and Shay Driscoll, our head of social media. Morning, Chu. Talk us through what was your job and what did you what did you have to do covering the typhoon? So the video team, we had crews deployed out in the typhoon. We had our senior field camera operator uh, out um, with the SCMP photographers in Hong Kong. We, de uh, we had deployed one of our video producers to Macau as well. And we had a video producer who was in Guangzhou, um, in Foshan, uh, where he was actually visiting his family. But uh, we asked him to stay put in case the storm moved up there. So uh, we were pretty well covered in terms of uh, having people around the areas we thought would be affected. So part of my job was just coordinating, uh, making sure uh, everybody uh, was safe, first of all, but also keeping on, uh, on top of where they were going to shoot video and um, and, and still images. Uh, we also had a colleague over on the Kowloon side uh, who was near his home uh, in Hong Kong, near the very pier there, and he went out and got some video as well. Um, the other thing that we had to do was... Of course, after that video was shot, they would send it in to us, and I was re I was responsible for editing a large portion of that video. Uh, and in addition to that, in addition to our own crews, we were getting a lot of video from social media coming in. Uh, you know, obviously, everybody has a cell phone these days, a, you know, a mobile phone that they can record video on. So I had friends sending me videos from their houses, um, and then we got people forwarding other videos that they got in chat groups and whatnot. And all these images were incredibly dramatic. 
So a lot of videos were coming through social media to tell us how, you know, what was the process to verify all the things that were coming in. We had these incredible images coming to us from social media, cranes collapsing, waves crashing into people's windows. Uh, biggest challenge for us is to make sure that, that video is authentic. We live in an era of fake news. Um, you know, I had friends sending me videos that they got from other friends. And my biggest, uh, my question to them was, did you shoot this? If you didn't shoot it, can you find out who shot it? Put me in contact with them. As much as we can, we want to find the person who shot that video. We need to get their permission to use that video on SEMB's platforms. Um, you know, sometimes we're not able to do that. So then we make a case for fair use. If it's, if it's out there and all the other media are using it, you know, it's news value. So we'll make the decision, you know what, like, we can verify this video. This is a recognizable landmark in Hong Kong. So we're confident it was shot today. And we, we will use it in our video because we're confident that it is authentic. Um, you know, I'm sure that, that there are images from you know, U.S. hurricanes and whatnot. Um, and it shows like a shark on the road swimming. And it's like, oh, my God, there's a shark. That's something we have to be very careful about. Or people will send video of a really intense storm and it turns out a couple of days later, oh, that was actually shot last year. So we have to be extra careful to make sure that the videos we get are authentic. As much as we can, we reach out to the poster, we find the person who shot the video, and uh, we get their permission. We make sure that it was shot that day uh, because it is a serious risk that we have to take putting out video that we didn't shoot ourselves. But that's the kind of era that we live in now. Everybody has a cell phone. Everybody's able to shoot video and share it. So it's on one hand, it's wonderful because you get all this amazing content. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to, make, to, to verify that that is actually authentic. With all the videos coming in, were there any videos that were fake or a little bit crazy or out there that you saw? I didn't see any video that didn't turn out to be from the actual typhoon. Our social media team was responsible for subbing a lot of the video for, for going through it. I think one of the biggest challenges for us was trying to verify the location of some video. Uh, there was this one video of these waves crashing into the lobby of a hotel, and we didn't know which hotel it was. We weren't sure if it was in Hong Kong. It actually turns out it was in mainland China, and it was from Sunday. But just because we didn't know where it was, we couldn't authenticate it. We chose not to use it on that day. A lot of the video that we got from the social media, um, you know, the, the ones that really stuck out was the side of a roof of a building just collapsing. The crane, this giant crane falling to the ground, and you can hear the people who were filming it just screaming. Because it's that's how that's how intense this wind was. We have uh, we have video shot from a resident in Sheko showing the waters rushing towards her house. And at one point, she had to move because she would have been hit by the debris that was just coming up. Um, you know, we interviewed her yesterday, and, you know, she said she'd never experienced anything like that. Typhoon Haito hit Hong Kong last year, and it was quite destructive too, but she said this storm compared to Haito was a million times worse. And can you tell us about... You know, what happened in the afternoon? You know, you sit mm. in our office, you sit in a yeah. place where you have one of the best views um, of Causeway Bay and of the Victoria Harbor. Can you tell us what happened in the afternoon? So one of the ironic things about uh, working in this office, uh, and especially where I sit, is um, I put out a video earlier in the day saying that the Hong Kong Observatory had increased the typhoon signal to a number 10, which is the most serious on the scale. One of the things the Hong Kong Observatory advised people to do was to stay away from exposed windows. My desk is right by a window. So 
I was like, this is very ironic because here I am making a video of telling people to stay away from windows and I sit right by one. Tell us exactly what you what your view is outside the window. My view is the skyline uh, across the street from Causeway Bay, and I get a little bit of view of uh, Victoria Harbor as well. To be able to watch this typhoon from where I sit was incredible, because I have never seen the direction of the rain hitting the window change direction, because the wind has changed it. Um, the wind gusts were so powerful, and you can hear it, and you can actually see just, you know, Water flying in, flying in all different directions. Across the street, at the top of the building across the street, somebody left a ladder out. And we thought, oh, God, like, you know, like, I hope they tied it down because if not, that's going to go flying somewhere. Um, so to be able to watch the force of the storm, I felt, wow, I have the best vantage point from a safe location to really watch, uh, you know, the force of this typhoon. And it's incredible to watch. Um, but then at one point, my boss was by uh, talking to us, and he looked in maybe two windows down from where I'm sitting, because he cracks. And immediately he said, get away from the windows, get away from the windows. So my colleague and I kind of just jumped back. But then, you know, we have very expensive Mac computers uh, that we do our editing on. So we had to get back in there, unplug everything. And we're talking about six, seven computers, and just move them uh, you know, closer indoors. And I spent the rest of my day in our editing suite, which doesn't have a window, um, uh, but, you know, w- was a lot safer. And, uh, you know, we boarded up the ex- uh, the window that had cracked just in case. Thankfully, he didn't come in. But that was a, 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 you know, in terms of scary moments, that was a, that was the scariest moment we had in, in our office. You've worked previously with CNN across Asia and also CCTV in Beijing. Can you tell us, you know, if it was any different covering this a typhoon than to other natural disasters you've seen in the region. This storm hit us right at home. So as a journalist, to actually witness it, that was absolutely incredible. At CNN, my job was on the news desk. So it was covering, um, you know, uh, typhoons in other countries, getting the information as it comes in, but not actually being able to see firsthand what was going on. Um, here, I had a front row seat. And the way that we covered it at SCMP, because, you know, we, we are a global brand, but we're still the the me, the English media of record in Hong Kong. So there was a large element of local news reporting uh, to this story. And we had crews out in two locations in Hong Kong. We had one in Macau. We had one in China. So be, to be able to witness it and tell that story to the audience at home, as well as the audience around the world. That felt very different. And you could tell at the end of the day, I took the best video that we had, uh, the best video that we got from our crews, as well as the social media. And I cut it together in a video uh, that went out on scmp.com and on social media. It did so well in terms of gauging uh, viewer interest. Um, It's almost at 4 million views on Facebook right now. It just really shows the power that those images can have on people. This storm was absolutely incredible. Hong Kong is a city that prides itself on good infrastructure. There are buildings that are designed to sway when the winds are too high and, you know, but not crumble. But we actually saw a side of a building fall down. We saw an office building in Kowloon with so many of the windows blown out, papers flying everywhere. These are images that we haven't seen in Hong Kong before. This storm was so intense. Trees everywhere. That's just the sheer devastation that uh, the storm left 
in a city as well built. You know, Hong Kong is a city which is used to typhoons. We get like three, four a year. But this was so intense. What's remarkable about it is that nobody died. Yeah, as you said, Hong Kong is no stranger to typhoons. We have a typhoon season that runs from May to September, and we get a couple of them every year, other than this being the most intense storm uh, to hit the city. It did seem that Hong Kongers reacted to it. Um, They took it in stride. Typhoons are something that Hong Kongers uh, are used to. Anyone who's lived here for a long period of time, people especially who have grown up here, they deal with three, four a year. Um, And... They know what to do. It, it, you, you almost go into, um, you know, uh, what is it called? Autopilot mode. Yeah. You you almost go into autopilot mode. Oh, a typhoon is coming. Okay, great. Let's stock up on groceries. Let's get canned goods. Instant noodles. Great thing. Um, go buy duct tape. Tape up your windows. So it's, you know, um, something that um, the Hong Kongers are used to. And it's just kind of part of life. And then, you know, stay indoors. Find some activity to do, you know, cook, bake. Um, one thing that one of our colleagues mentioned yesterday, and when you think about it, it's actually true, and, and you don't actually understand why people do it, but, you know, the supermarket shelves are always empty with water and stuff, but one thing that a lot of Hong Kongers stock up in is toilet paper, and why you need to buy 20 packs of toilet paper for a typhoon is beyond me. Um, there's no reason for it. But people do it. And, you know, and, it, and it's not cheap either because they jack up the prices. But it's something that people do. I've heard people have baking parties or cooking parties just because you can't leave your house. So you may as well enjoy the day um, as much as you can. And so many people spend their time away from home in Hong Kong. Property is small. So a lot of people, can't, you're, kinda, you're gonna go home at the end of the day and you sleep and that's kind of it. Or you're so busy because like, you're working 15 hours a day and then you're out and about. A lot of people just take this time to, okay, you know what, I'm just going to be at home for a bit and enjoy it, you know. Thank God for Netflix. So people find ways to, to pass the day. Normally the typhoon lasts one day, and that's kind of it. So they take it in stride. They, they know how to enjoy themselves. They know how to keep safe. Um, I think one of the most creative things I saw uh, on uh, it was um, one of the people I follow on Facebook. Um, normally people are posting uh, X's on the windows, uh, for obvious reasons, in case it shatters, this guy took duct tape and he wrote up the word beef on his window. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I saw a couple of those. Um, the shop downstairs uh, at, uh, at our estate, they had a tic-tac-toe game going on on the window. Um, other people, I think they had, they spelt like a message across. So the person opposite in the other building could see it. They said, um, you want to play Mahjong? We're missing one person. You know, these are all the kind of creative things that we get going on in Hong Kong. And I just love it that Hong Kong people think out of the box. What surprised me, you know, when I covered typhoons before, a lot of people actually, you know, some people actually don't choose to stay indoors because sometimes when the typhoon comes, it's not that destructive. It's like strong winds, but it's not as crazy as it was this time. I actually know people who take advantage of a TA and they go out to see a movie or they go to a cha chan hang and they have a meal mm-hmm. um, and they like going outdoors because it's so empty and they can finally feel like they can walk around. Um, but actually this time around, I th- felt people were kind of like, okay, we shouldn't be going outdoors this yeah. time. I think a lot of people got the message, this is a really serious storm. Like One of the other things that I think um, th- th- that we should mention is the, the bars have lock-ins. So if a, serious, if a serious storm is coming and there are customers in the bar, they'll just kind of lock everyone inside and people just got stay there and get drunk. 
I don't think that happened this time around because it was a T10. It was so early in the day. A lot of businesses just announced we're not opening today. We're all staying at home. You know, everybody take precautions. There were a few people who went to the TST pier to try to get a video of the waves because the waves were super high. Our cameraman went out there and you could see normally the Hong Kong skyline is very visible from TST. And it's an iconic shot that, you know, uh, anyone who's ever uh, seen a skyline shot of Hong Kong, it's taken from TST. You couldn't even see the skyline that day. And we actually have a video of the wind so strong, it blew over one of the guys who, who got up and laughed and laughed it off. But um, it was very, very intense. Shay Driscoll, you run social media at SEMP. You're in charge of our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Tell us how your team prepared for Super Typhoon Mankut. Uh, so the typhoon really started for us on Thursday when, uh, with the help of the video team, we ran a Facebook Live which was the most bizarre Facebook Live I've ever seen. Uh, basically, it was a data visualization of the storm building off of the Philippines. Uh, and nothing happened for four hours. Four hours straight, it barely moved. There were some swirly lines on screen. And 2.5 million people watched it, uh, it, making it by far the biggest Facebook Live in our history. So that was uh, the first indication that, you know, there was going to be huge interest in this storm, that something was different. So building into the weekend, we made some preparations on our part. One big thing we did was preparing a CrowdTangle dashboard to look at all of the Facebook pages and groups in the world who were mentioning keywords related to the typhoon. So we had, you know, both on the English side, searching for typhoon and searching for Mangkut, uh, and also on the Chinese side, because we wanted to pick up the stuff that was going viral in Hong Kong. Uh, so we had uh, searches going for Typhoon, I think is the word, you know, both in traditional and simplified Chinese, and also the name of the typhoon, which I won't dare to pronounce. So what happened on the day was that our social video producer came in and spent the entire day looking at videos from the event. Uh, and this proved really profitable early on. She found two really strong videos right at the start, you know, which, made, uh, which we managed to source and get the permission to use. You may have seen the corner of a building falling off along with a tree right at the top, Right? We, so we got, she saw that and we got permission to use it. Um, but as the day went by, her job got a lot di more difficult because things started going viral. Uh, people started sharing things that they hadn't taken themselves or that you know, their friend had sent them who had received it in turn from another friend. And so it got harder and harder to verify that, yes, these incredible pieces of footage were actually taken in Hong Kong during this typhoon. That, that was a major problem, basically. Chu mentioned that, you know, authenticating video, especially from social media, was very, very difficult. Um, was there any way that the team was able to overcome this difficulty or how did you handle it? No, a, lot, a big part of it is just hoping that someone replies uh, and hoping that they were the original people who posted it. Uh, I, I said on the day itself that we would probably get a lot of replies the next day, you know, when... Frankly, there was no need for any of that footage anymore. Uh, and true enough, we did. A lot of people, I suppose, don't check their Facebook accounts. You know, after posting something, they just drop something in the group and, you know, went off to enjoy the typhoon. Uh, and so we couldn't get around it. There were so many pieces of footage that we really wanted to use. We had one of a crane arm swinging towards a building, an, an apartment in the building. Uh, and you can see it slowly swinging and narrowly missing the window. It just comes within, I don't know, it looks like centimeters uh, away from the window. And I watched that about five times and each time I was just on the edge of my seat like, 
just thinking, okay, it's going to crash into the window this time. I'm not overselling it. It really was, you know, pretty interesting. But we just couldn't verify. We couldn't get permission to use it. And so that's when we decide, no, we're not going to run it. You know, because, you know, sometimes if a piece of footage is too good to be true, uh, it might be too good to be true. You know, we it probably isn't from the typhoon. It's just somebody looking to get some social media views out of a major news event. So aside from the Facebook Live that you ran a couple of days earlier, there's also something that you did differently with the Facebook page. Can you talk about that? A Facebook group in particular. We had a Facebook group called Living in Hong Kong, which had about 2,700 members before the typhoon. The digital team at SCMP came up with the frankly genius idea, uh, and it wasn't my idea, so I can say that. You know, I'm not, I'm not boasting. The idea was to change the group to become a, uh, a group specifically for the typhoon. So the name was changed to Super Typhoon Mangkut because at the time we thought it was going to be a super typhoon. But the whole point was that it would be a group to, um, for people to share the stuff that they're seeing, to ask for help, for information, uh, for us to disseminate the information that we were getting from the authorities, from our reporters on the ground. As of today, uh, it has about 6,500 members. So the group's membership more than doubled um, as you know, the typhoon hit Hong Kong. And so I was on duty on Sunday handling the rest of SCMP's social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, and all that. And I was, frankly, I was swamped with things that were coming in. At the same time, I was refreshing this group. And every five minutes or so, we had 100 new members requesting to join. And, you know, another maybe 20 or 30 posts that were coming in from people who wanted to put their stuff in the group. And the nature of Facebook groups is that I have to approve them. Uh, I don't have to approve them individually. I don't have to approve members individually, but I have to approve posts. And I have to make sure that, you know, I don't spam people with posts and I post the right things. So that was just another thing that was going on. So sometimes, you know, if I take my eye, if I took my eye off the, the group for about 15 minutes, I get a shout from my boss saying, hey, you know, there are 128 new members. You know, you need to stay on top of this. And I have to resist very much the temptation to say, I know, man, um, I'm trying. Uh, but no, it was a great move. And there was just a lot, a lot of traction on the group. People were really, really interested because, I mean, it's something that affects everyone, uh, everyone's daily life. You know, they were all cooped up in their homes, uh, waiting for the wrath of Mangkut to pass. Can you tell us, you know, what are some of the things that you saw in the group? What sort of messages were they posting? What was the atmosphere like in that community? Well, as the, as the storm picked up, people were sharing scenes from where they, from where they were. Um, at the start, it was pretty basic things, just some wind and some rain. Um, but as the day wore on, of course, you know, it started to get worse. Uh, it reached a point midday, uh, maybe, I don't know, halfway through the storm, when I think people gave up on sharing what they took themselves uh, and started sharing what they were receiving from friends or seeing online. So we were getting uh, things like an owl sitting outside someone's, win someone's apartment window, which I think later on was proven to be from Shenzhen or something. And we were receiving stuff like someone's toilet bowl spurting water up into the air as they scream. You know, we couldn't run this as SCMP, but we could run it as social media posts from people in our group. Uh, and that just helped to spur a lot of discussion. People were sharing stuff, uh, that, that sort of, you know, lighthearted stuff on their own pages. I, I like to think it was a one-stop place for people to take in, you know, not just the official news from the typhoon that, you know, okay, now it's a T10, it's dropped to a T8, but also scenes from around the typhoon, everything you would want to be aware of in such a storm, uh, you could find in one place. And in the Facebook group, did you see, you know, any fake videos? Do you see any sharks swimming along the highway? You know, what sort of things? 
Uh, no sharks, luckily. You know, I wonder if that is uh, a Hong Kong thing, you know, where they don't share something that's so obviously uh, maliciously intended to spread panic. But um, we were seeing some things that we couldn't verify and we were pretty sure weren't true. We saw a tornado somewhere off the coast of, I don't know, Hong Kong or something. And, you know, something like that would have been sensational. It would have brought us, like, you know, millions of views. But if there's no way to verify... Uh, it, again, was probably too good to be true. I also heard people saw planes overturning in the in the typhoon, uh, in the really strong winds, and you're always going to get this sort of video that you always wonder, you always want to use, but you know you really shouldn't in events like this. And we were seeing a bunch of that. Shay, we spoke to Fila earlier, and um, he took that video of the man walking around the typhoon with the rubbish bin over his head. But it was you who tweeted that video out to the world. What was what was it like watching that go viral? Um, I think that did really well, particularly because I mean, of course, it was a great scene. Uh, Fila sent it to us saying, "I've got some social media goal for you guys," and he was he was spot on. But also at the point we had been tweeting little snippets of video the whole day, and um, they were mostly you know scenes of destruction and winds and just really grim stuff. And a little bit of levity in the in that situation, I think, really, really did well. It it, it was a good time to post such a video. Um, and after we tweeted that, yeah, it, it, it just kept going because it was absolutely hilarious. And uh, we saw more and more viral videos as, you know, the day went by and the next day came. Uh, one in particular that my team produced was people in China, in mainland China. I was, I'm not sure if it was in Shenzhen or not. But people were crawling through fallen trees just to get to work. And that, you know, really speaks to how the dedication these people have to making it to office or, uh, I don't know, the fear they have from their bosses, uh, one or the other. And it just made for a really compelling video. Shay, you're from Singapore. Have you experienced anything like this? No, we don't do disasters. We don't do natural disasters in Singapore. We are not blessed with humour as a people, um, but we are blessed in the sense that we are not struck by things like typhoons, you know, every year. Um, so it was new for me. I was here last year, but I was out of the country. I was stuck in Taipei during the uh, Typhoon Heito. So I hadn't seen it firsthand. Um, but I was here for this and it was a real experience, especially coming from somewhere where, you know, you never have to worry about a storm or even just to wear anything other than carrying an umbrella every day. The walk, My walk home from the office after the typhoon was interesting because I walked in a very narrow alley and signboards were flapping above my head and um, I've always wanted to die in Singapore. I never wanted to die overseas. As I continue walking home, you know, I pass by several large fallen trees, uh, which again, you know, that's not an everyday experience. Um, so it was a pretty eye-opening. I was getting a lot of messages from uh, friends in Singapore asking if I was okay. And I saw on Facebook that Facebook had put out, you could mark that you were safe from the typhoon. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to give anyone any false impressions. You know, if I mark that I'm safe at 5 p.m., what if something happens at 8 p.m.? You know, it's just a lot of things that could go wrong. Also, I wanted to keep my friends guessing just a little bit, uh, you know, see how much value I am to them. No one actually asked, hey, man, hey, bro, are you okay? Which, uh, in any sort of serious sense, which was a bit disappointing, to be honest. But other than that, yeah, it was a pretty uh, interesting experience. I wouldn't recommend it for any Singaporean, but I'm glad I lived through it. Having experienced this natural disaster for the first time, did you think you got a better understanding of Hong Kong people and their culture and how they react 
to typhoons. Yeah, it seems a bit crazy to me that things like typhoons are not taken for granted, but then they're normal, you know. Whereas I don't think I could ever consider something that whips in and like uproots trees normal. Uh, people just making the preparations as if it were... Okay, obviously not everyday, or everyday occurrence, but it was just something that they had to deal with. Whereas I had to barely keep myself from panicking at times, like, what, what's going on? Um, so it was interesting to see. Uh, I suppose when you grow up in it and it, it really becomes part of your every year, your annual routine, it isn't that special anymore. Uh, and so you just get on with it. And that was quite inspiring to see, I guess. By 2 p.m., Mankut's full theory was coming to bear on Hong Kong. The list of major roads and tunnels closed by fallen trees and rising waters was growing. Rescue services were at peak capacity with 20,000 calls for help. The forecast storm surges were now higher than at any time since records began in the year 1904. And SCMP's video teams and reporters were documenting it, both here in Hong Kong and in Macau, the city devastated by the last major typhoon to pass through this region, Typhoon Hato in 2017. I'm here with two of our star video producers at the SCMP, Zhang Daoyu and Chris Healy. Let's start with Daoyu first. You were in Macau. Tell us what it was like there. Last year, it was the scene of death and devastation. Were you nervous going back this year? Uh, at the very beginning, I was really kind of nervous because I was checking the footage from last year in Macau, and I was like, oh, I probably drew the short straw in this game, and uh, I did a lot of preparation, brought, uh, bought a lot of waterproof bag and clothes, hoping that everything would be all right. But actually, going to Macau uh, and being there, it just kind of started to dial down a little bit. Everything was so calm before the storm. The weather was so great, and it actually calmed me a lot. Macau was pretty badly hit, but uh, I don't think it was as bad as in Hong Kong, eventually this year. And there was no casualties. It turned out to be an okay thing. <laughs> Can you describe some of the scenes down there? I grew up in the northern part of China, so that uh, was actually my first typhoon experience. We were out there at around 9 and 10-ish in the morning, and it was starting to pick up around that time, and then the wind grew stronger and stronger. It was really strong at around noon, and the three of us, this block, the city reporter, me and uh, Dixon, our photographer, we were, we were out there, and uh, we were walking down the street when there were like two... Wooden boards, I think, were just f flying past us. Yeah, I was really surprised at how strong was the wind, and uh, it was just so loud. And the rain was hitting hitting my face like I was just covered with water. Chris, what about you? You were in Hong Chun by the coast. Tell us what it was like down there. Uh, I had the opposite experience to Delia. I started out very complacent. Uh, I woke up and at 7 in the morning got picked up by a work car, taken around actually new territories areas first and i just thought this is gonna be a fizzler there's nothing happening uh wasn't wearing a helmet very like uh, okay this is just a dud uh and then we came back to the island and went out to hang fresh wind and uh that's when it was like i was like okay it's real <laughs> at what <laughs> point do you know it was real what what made what sort of scenes did you see that what sort of scenes did you see there that made you think uh, oh, no. Well, it was just before on the drive to there, uh, we were driving on the highways and they're all abandoned. 
there's just us on the highways, which is a surreal scene in itself for Hong Kong, this bustling city, and there's just no one on the roads, no one walking around. Uh, and the car just, we were driving along and this gust of wind in between two buildings came side on and just lurched the car into the next lane. And then we're like, okay, it's, uh, <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, it was about 11 a.m., uh, 11.30. And yeah, it, being on the eastern side of the island was the most exposed. Uh, there's nothing to stop the wind. So you, we were right on the, on the water there, and it was just howling in between the buildings. You, you kind of get little breaks. If you hide behind a building, it's windy but not bad, and then you step out and it's, you know, I don't know how strong the gusts were at that point, maybe 200, something like that. So uh, I brought my big camera, and that lasted all of five minutes and broke down, stopped working uh, for the rest of the day. So I just ran around in a GoPro with my helmet on. Yeah, it was a little bit hectic. Uh, we, I tried to get to, I got down to the water and then the storm surge was pushing over the top into the apartment buildings. And yeah, I walked around there in the wind, getting battered and knocked around. <laughs> you couldn't really stand up properly. And shortly after that, I decided that was it. I'm going inside the car because it was just increasing, increasing, increasing. And also the storm surge was coming in to such an extent that we were in a small Toyota Yaris type car and if we didn't leave, we would have been stuck there for the entire day because the, the surge was rising and as it was, we had to drive out through probably about knee-length knee water. Yeah, that, uh, that happened to me too. Uh, Macau wasn't too badly hit, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as in Hong Kong, but uh, the flood came so quickly. I, was, I remember I was filming from a vantage point in the hotel and after that, I wanted to go down and then the hotel staff were telling me the entrance was locked, locked down. I was I was confused. Like, what, what do you mean? And then I went downstairs, and the water, uh, the hotel was built like on the first level instead of the ground level. So the ground level was completely flooded by the time I went downstairs. So while I was filming, I get the feeling that it was about knee deep, and then water quickly ro rose to the first like ground floor level. That was pretty quick. And you were stuck in the hotel. Yeah, for, for quite a few hours, actually. I, I ended up filming uh, from another vantage point after the rain kind of stopped for a while, and I could see all the first floor uh, and the ground floor were kind of like all flooded. Everything, like there were things floating, and uh, our, cap, our photographer, Dixon, saw rescuers uh, riding in boats in between the city streets trying to rescue old people and uh, pets, probably. Last year was pretty bad in Macau. Um, can you tell us what it was like this year in terms of death casualties and, and you know how fast the city was able to recover this time around? All of us were really surprised when we found out the next day the water actually receded. So there was no, like, on the previous day, it felt like the world was coming to an end and we're probably going to stuck in the flood for a couple of days. And in the next morning when we go out, uh, the water went down. But uh, electricity was still not up. There were tons of debris just lying in the streets. And people were like cleaning. And the traffic lights were out. So the traffic police were um, directing the traffic. But in terms of uh, casualties, there were no deaths this year. So Tayu, you were, you were stuck in the hotel in Macau on the 14th floor. Now let, let's go back to Chris. You know, you were out there, out in the field, and we've all seen that very, very dramatic footage. It was very shaky. Tell us, what were the conditions you were facing out there? The wind was howling in between two apartment blocks, uh, and it was 
so strong that it was picking up bits of debris and obviously rain was coming in sideways. So you couldn't even really open your eyes properly. So I kind of just had to hold the GoPro out in front of me and just try to keep it as steady and level as I possibly could. But it's near impossible because you just, and you're also wearing wet, you're trying to wear wet weather gear, which just becomes a big sail as well. The plastic doesn't let the wind through. So essentially you just have become this big walking sail, which kind of accentuates the, the strength of the, of the wind. And so you just get buffeted around in every direction. And it's not a, the, the squalls aren't a consistent wind. They, 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 they're on and then they're off and then they come from a different direction. They bounce off the building. So it's very unpredictable. And so you're kind of leaning in and then it backs off and you almost fall over. <laughs> uh, so it was quite, quite challenging to film in. Um, I was just trying to wipe the lens off as much as I could and get a few seconds and do it again. And the other thing that I noticed a lot in that area was the amount of rubbish, which is actually a consistent thing I've, I've seen a lot throughout every area in Hong Kong after this typhoon was styrofoam rubbish everywhere, which I can only assume has been picked up in the South China Sea and just blown all the way onto the mainland. It's quite disturbing. So the typhoon started leaving Hong Kong on Sunday evening, but your job didn't finish there. You had to keep filming what happened after the recovery work and people going back to work and the destruction that the typhoon left in its wake. Can you tell us more about what happened the days after the typhoon left? We tried to get to Sheko on the day after, but um, we couldn't get there because the roads were so impeded by downed trees everywhere. So we got as far as Repulse Bay uh, and the drive between uh, Deepwater Bay and Repulse Bay took an hour and 45 minutes. It's about 2.5 kilometers <laughs> because there was just so many trees down everywhere. So, um, but yes, uh, Deepwater Bay was quite badly impacted. Basically the contents of the beach had been pushed up by the storm onto the, onto the road and had blocked the entire road. So the emergency services were shoveling sand off the road and trees off the road. And the entire first level of the life-saving club there had, was completely under sand. Like that was, it was a, a level, a story of sand, basically. The following day, we tried again and we went straight to, to Sheko. Uh, and that was probably the worst affected I've seen so far. Uh, on the one, there's two beaches there. On the smaller beach, there's a, an old school there that was completely destroyed. It looked like a kind of like a missile strike or a, an earthquake because the the beach had been washed out completely from underneath it, and not just the beach. The earth underneath the the building had been washed out from it essentially, uh, and so the whole building or half of the building collapsed um, completely. So it's completely destroyed, and all the properties along that side as well. Also, the, there was a storm wall which had been just ripped apart. So concrete had just been broken and shattered which is quite amazing, the force of that. And on the other, the main beach in Sheko, we spoke to some, uh, some locals there that had beachfront properties who were staying there at the time uh, during the storm, and then the storm surge came up and smashed their front windows, and they just decided that that was it, they had to leave. Uh, so that whole section is just covered in down trees, and there's, again, rubbish everywhere, debris, bits of furniture, couches floating around. Uh, yeah, it was quite quite a path of destruction on the beach there. So speaking of dramatic footage that you shot, we also received a lot of powerful footage from residents all around the city. And you received one, um, you know, from Sheko, and you got the chance to interview her. What did she tell you? Yeah, we went to Eno. That was uh, the lady who supplied that amazing footage. And it was of the waves crashing 
you know, normally the, the beach would have from her, the waterfront from her front door would have been normally 20 meters away, but it was, it smashed into the front of her window on her front porch. Uh, and then yes, they just decided that was it. They were trying to hold out in the property and then that was it. The last straw, they went, jumped out of the window and then fled to, to some friend's house. And we came around the next day or two days later, uh, and and spoke to them about what they were doing and and the whole front lawn was just covered in down trees bits of furniture just rubbish everywhere and it smelt of rotten fish because there were, there were so many fish that had been washed up as well in this in the process that were just kind of stewing with the garbage so it was quite a disgusting scene and they were trying their best to clean it up they were pretty optimistic actually i think they were kind of mixed emotions that they were kind of happy that that was the only damage considering like their whole house I thought would have been destroyed but it wasn't they were also I wouldn't say pleading but you know trying to get the message across that they need help Sheko needs help from the government to clean up so they were quite um quite appreciative that we were able to tell that for them Chris this is your first time covering a typhoon in Hong Kong but you've been around you've been to other places you've covered other natural disasters um how does how does a typhoon compare to your other experiences? And did you get a better sense and understanding of Hong Kong and how Hong Kong people reacted to this natural disaster? I've been through a few cyclones in Australia. Um, Cyclone Yasi 2010 uh, was a Category 5 uh, and was an enormous storm. But they always seem to hit at like 3 in the morning. And so you never, you know, I never was able to actually be out in the middle of it. You were out either side, uh, which probably was for the best because that was a a beast of a storm that was about 330 kilometers an hour the winds there which you just would not go out in hong kong yeah it, i think obviously it's a pretty efficient industrious place i think they're going to get back on their feet pretty quickly and the next day everyone was out cleaning and no one that, that i spoke to was too downbeat about it they were just getting on with it and you know what can you do you just fix your bar you clean up the rubbish you mop up the mud Thanks, guys. Both of you have been working on a roll since Sunday. You guys must be tired. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. My pleasure. The South China Morning Post has changed a lot since we started putting a newspaper out in 1903. But the biggest change to our typhoon coverage in the past two years has been to go live on Facebook. That started two years ago when Danny Lee walked the audience through an empty Times Square during Typhoon Haima and then went live from the Star Ferry Terminal on the Central Foreshore. On Sunday, September 16th, it was Alkira Reinfrank's turn. Well, let's get back to Hong Kong now where that typhoon has been skirting. Elrika Reinfrank is from the South China Morning Post and she's actually there where the storm has been gathering uh, pace. And the major storm is now making its way across Hong Kong. Alkira Reinfrank is with the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong and she joins us live. Alkira, what's the situation there now? Alkira, tell us how your Sunday went down. Well, I first got into the office about nine o'clock and... I think everyone were looking outside and were like, oh, it's a bit windy, it's a bit rainy. But I think even someone said that, you know, the water pressure was worse in their shower than it was outside. So I think it was, it was a little bit disappointing at the beginning. And then slowly it started picking up. So like sheets of rain started moving in and we're like, all right, this is it. We need to go outside. And uh, uh, myself and Jared, who was filming the live crosses, we went down to Hennessy Road, which is a few blocks over from Times Square and Causeway Bay. And that's 
that's usually where, you know, on especially on a Sunday, it's just so busy and packed with people trying to get to the different shops around there. But it was completely empty and it must be a two or, or it's a four, four lane almost highway in a way. And it was just this huge wind tunnel and we were standing under a, a, a tram stop. So we were covered, but the wind was still ripping through and there was alarms going off from some stores. And I think that one of the weirdest moments, I think in Hong Kong, you, you're in your little bubble and you don't see other people. But there was this moment where the two of us were walking outside next to this other lady with an umbrella. And suddenly you're in this open space surrounded by these huge buildings and you hear these like smashing and cracking noises. And you both just, everyone looks at each other and actually connects with each other. Like the, oh my gosh, you know, what is happening right now? And that was the really surreal experience sharing it with some stranger that you don't know where everyone's like all right we need to get undercover or get out of this but we did our first uh live facebook live from down there and just got completely drenched um but that was kind of like my first experience out in a typhoon uh and then we moved on to the ifc which is in central and we were supposed to go down to the uh, the central waterfront, which is kind of like the gold standard of where you do a Facebook Live from if there's a typhoon coming. It's very open and uh, that's where you can kind of get the best, I guess, view from uh, from the water and the storm coming through, but we couldn't even get down there. There was just this moment where we were about, we looked outside and we went to the window with, I think, all these other, not storm chasers, but just people kind of out interested to have a look. And we looked outside and the almost the palm trees looked like they were going sideways. They were like, we can't, we can't actually go out there. Like it was to a point where, you know, I think we actually have to stay inside and, and stay safe and not, you know, you have this adrenaline, you want to go chase the storm, but there was a moment where like, we can't do it. You've um, covered bushfires back in Australia, and this is your first time in Hong Kong covering, you know, such an intense typhoon. How does that compare? You know, you put your life on the line reporting outside in the field. Were there were there also any moments, you know, where you felt this is too dangerous, we have to step back? The strangest thing, it wasn't when we were first outside in Hennessy Road. It was actually when we were um, in, in the IFC, so where you think you're going to be safe. And we, we were safe, but uh, with all the glass window panes, you see everything flying through and the glass doors, they were sandbagged and also tethered down, but some of them had broken free. And every so often you had debris flying in and there's this piece of metal that flew in and just it missed one of the guys that was standing in there. There were a couple of people watching the storm, a couple of families and lots of security guards. Uh, and then we just saw this huge kind of metal sheet fly through and it was this, the wind had picked up and it was just, it gone from just everything heading in the one direction to something could head in our direction. Uh, And that's when we picked up all our gear and it was like, okay, which way is the closest way to get away from this glass? Because we needed to be further into the, into the mall because we just didn't know what was going to happen next. And then we went downstairs and took the MTR back to the office because luckily there's the good um, the train system here in Hong Kong so we could kind of get between our locations without having to be outdoors. After doing those Facebook Lives um, outdoors and indoors, um, you also got the chance to be the face of the SCMP to international media. What was that like? That was really uh, that was a really exciting and interesting experience to to see how, I guess, people from overseas 
what what they were asking about what was going on in Hong Kong because at the same time it was a tale of two storms. We had uh, Hurricane Florence happening in America and I think the, the Western media in particular were putting a lot of emphasis on what was happening there, forgetting that an even big, bigger storm, an even more deadly storm, was currently raging in Asia. And so it was the first time they kind of took notice. And, and even then I don't think anyone asked me about casualties, uh, but they were just trying to comprehend how big this this storm was. And so I was downstairs in Causeway Bay, just uh, in Times Square, which is underneath our office. Uh, and even there, you could see all the uprooted trees and the advertising that had been pulled down in the wind. And so it was uh, it was a really proud moment for me being able to um, speak to BBC uh, World News and ABC uh, News 24 in Australia and show them a little bit of the devastation and tell them really what was happening in Asia when so much of the focus has been on America. Speaking about Hurricane Florence in the US and then um, Super Typhoon Mankut coming in Hong Kong, we saw a lot of the media coverage in the US a few days earlier. You know, reporters were standing out in the field in strong wind, waist deep in water. Did that affect your approach in covering the super typhoon Mancoot? It, it was definitely spoken about before we went out that we weren't going to do one of the sensationalized American methods because I think after every hurricane, there's always one reporter that's like, has gone viral and is the laughing stock of the internet because they're, yeah, waist deep and they're, you know, bracing on for dear life as someone, like someone and their dog walks past completely like unharmed. And um, that's not my style of reporting anyway, but we we wanted to make sure the storm almost spoke for itself. And I was just giving the straight facts because I was not turning into a meme that day. That was not my plan. <laughs> um, so yeah, we just went out there and tried to give um, the best uh, or tried to cover it as straightforward as possible because I think a few days beforehand was when one of the reporters, uh, I can't remember what news organisation, but he was blasted by the wind as two people just walked past him. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in such a in such a dangerous situation anyway, you don't want to be playing it up and you, you can lose a lot more <laughs> than your dignity going out in these storms. Even during my crosses with BBC and ABC, uh, there were... There was a lot of mainland tourists that had come out uh, further in, uh, further to the end of the storm and were out and about. So I had to make it very clear that uh, where I was and that there were other people around instead of me being, you know, this intrepid reporter, the only person out in Hong Kong. I wasn't the only person out in Hong Kong. There was plenty of people around. It was just a matter of uh, keeping everyone updated on what was going on. So here we are, one week later. People are back to work. Students are back in schools, the shoppers and the tourists are once again back in Times Square. And this afternoon, a weather report came in of a weather system forming in the Pacific Ocean off Guam. It's still typhoon season, and here in Hong Kong, we're ready for it. <laughs> 